Well, this morning we go from the milk to the meat. We've been talking about the need to go from the milk to the meat for some time, and today we actually do it. I realize that we have all the kids in here, and uh, so they're going to be challenged today uh, just to share in their parents' growth. Steve's already given them some great insight into what we're going to talk about this morning. But we are going on to something a little more difficult to understand. And it's something that's very important because our author has already reprimanded his readers for becoming dull of hearing and choosing to stay with the milk of God's word instead of going on to the meat and and warning them of the consequences of such. It's dangerous for us to just settle in to those things with which we are comfortable. It's important for us to, to, to go on to maturity in Christ. And the author now lays before us some very meaty passages. He's going to be giving us a look at the realities behind the shadows of the Old Testament. He's going to be exploring the real purpose for the law the priesthood, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices. And by doing so, he's going to lead us to a deeper understanding of who our Lord is. And all was accomplished by his coming to earth, dying, rising, and then ascending back to glory. Now, not only will this understanding satisfy our intellectual curiosity, but more importantly, it will convince us all the more of the fact that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he meant it. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And if we understand why that is so, will not be so apt to back down from what many believe to be a very bigoted position that if you're not a Christian, you won't get to heaven. Now, we'll understand why this is not accepted by the majority in our pluralistic society, but it is nonetheless true. It's important that we understand was made available through Christ and through Christ alone. So let's get to the first meaty issue that he lays before us, the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's already mentioned Melchizedek three times just in passing. The last time was in the last verse of the sixth chapter where he once again made mention of the fact that Jesus had become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So who is this Melchizedek? And what does he have to do with our Lord and his priesthood? Well, let's find out. Beginning with a look at his person. We're in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. 
without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commanded in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal man Mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Perhaps the best way to understand this is to view it as a movie. Okay, a movie about our Lord. And the actor playing the part of Jesus is Melchizedek. But while we have to act out the story of a man's life after it's become history, if we're to be accurate, God is using Melchizedek to act out some very important aspects of Jesus' life thousands of years before he's born. The account of Melchizedek's appearance is found in the book of Genesis. Abraham and Lot had arrived in the land of promise and had settled in two separate areas due to a conflict between their herdsmen over rights to pasture land. Abraham had given his nephew, Lot, his choice of the land, and he chose the Jordan Valley, settling eventually in Sodom. Abraham then settled in Canaan, proper. In the course of time, Sodom was ransacked by a coalition of four kings from the east, and Lot and his family were taken captive. When he heard of it, Abraham gathered together his 318 trained men, giving us some idea of his wealth and his influence, and he set out to rescue Lot. They overtook them at Dan and attacked at night, defeating the four kings, Rescuing Lot, his family, and all the possessions. On the way home from victory, Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, appeared on the scene. And we read the brief account in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. That's it. That is the story of Melchizedek. The only other reference to Melchizedek outside the book of Hebrews is found in Psalm 110.4, 
where a messianic prophecy speaking of Jesus says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is in view when Melchizedek is mentioned. And while the first ten verses of Hebrews 7 don't refer to Jesus specifically, the rest of the chapter will make it clear that it is Jesus who is the focus of thought here. It is Jesus that we actually see projected into the life of Melchizedek. Now, I find it interesting that our author completely disregards the possible significance of the fact that Melchizedek offered Abraham bread and wine, symbols of Jesus' sacrificial body, and goes immediately to the significance of his name. For Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then it's noted that he actually was the king. He was king of Salem, the city-state that most likely became the city of Jerusalem. And king of Salem means king of peace. So in Melchizedek... We find a picture of the king of righteousness and peace. We also see something else. Since no reference is given to Melchizedek's ancestry, he appears and then disappears from history without a trace. Our author sees a picture of the eternal nature of the Son of God. The one who actually has no beginning of days. Or end of life. Then we see how great this king of righteousness and peace was. He was greater than the greatest of the patriarchs. He was greater than Abraham. This is borne out in two ways. Abraham had received the promises of God, yet Melchizedek blessed him. And this blessing wasn't just a social nicety. It was an actual blessing from God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek's relationship with God was such that he could add blessing to the one who had already been personally blessed by God. He was that much greater than Abraham. Without a doubt, our author says, the lesser is blessed by the greater. His greatness is further confirmed by the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Without any prompting or precedent, Abraham, in immediate recognition of the greatness of the king of righteousness and peace, gave him one-tenth of the choicest of the spoils. As I mentioned last week, this is the first time We encounter tithing in Scripture, and it illustrates that tithing isn't just a legal requirement of the Old Testament. It was an acceptable response to the blessing of God long before the law required it. It's a recognition that what we have and what we have gained really belongs to God, because without him, we would have nothing. So Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And in doing so, not only demonstrated that Melchizedek was greater than he, but also demonstrated that Melchizedek was greater than any who would come from him, including Levi. Now, Levi was the father of Aaron. 
and ultimately of all the priests and Levites who functioned as bridge builders between God and the Israelites. And the law commanded that God's people were to give one-tenth of their income for the support of the Levites and priests. However, since Levi, in effect, paid tithes to Melchizedek through his great-grandfather Abraham, this demonstrated that the Melchizedekian priesthood was greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now, this was important, particularly to those to whom this letter of Hebrews was written. They were of Jewish ancestry, you remember. And they were being tempted to go back to Judaism, to the old covenant, to the old priesthood. That's why this argument was so important for them. Okay, But it gives us great insight into the priesthood of Jesus. Because in Melchizedek, king of righteousness and peace, we have a picture of the greatest of all priests. The one to whom all should pay tithes. The eternal source of righteousness and peace for all mankind. In Melchizedek, we have a picture of Jesus Christ. Next, we're brought to understand the promise that comes with this king of righteousness and peace. Continuing verses 11 through 22. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are written belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a physical or a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The point of all this is that when there was a fundamental change in the priesthood, there had to be also a fundamental change in the law. The law and the priesthood went together. The law made clear the sinfulness of the people. The priesthood provided access to God in spite of the sin. The law also spelled out who could function 
in the role of priest between God and man. And since the law required that all priests come from Aaron, and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, the law had to be changed. And the change was more than just a change of designation of the tribe from which the priest could come. The change had to do with what qualified a man to come before God. The Levitical priest came to God on the basis of a law of physical requirements. It had to do with externals, who your parents were, what you were wearing, as we saw illustrated this morning, the preparations that you had made. If you met the external requirements, you could function as a priest. But a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek was based on the power of an indestructible life, on the nature of the priest himself. Jesus could function as priest because of who he was, not because of what he did. Now, he did do certain things because of who he was. But his priesthood wasn't based on externals. His priesthood was based on an eternal, intrinsic relationship he has with the Father. And therefore, as a priest, he can bring people into a relationship with the Father on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of conformity to external laws. And that changed everything. It was a good thing. Because the law in actuality was weak and useless. It could point out a man's sin and it could provide a way for that sin to be covered over through the sacrificial system. But it couldn't make the man better. Not really. Perfection. Becoming all that God wants a man to be was impossible through the law. It just could not do it. The law could free no one from the bondage of sin. The law tied man to a constant cycle of sin and sacrifice, sin and sacrifice, sin and sacrifice. There was no freedom from sin. But with a priesthood based on an indestructible, perfect life came a better hope. Jesus has a different kind of relationship with God. And through him, we have the promise of being brought into a different kind of relationship with God also. We can draw near to God with full assurance of the acceptance because of the unique relationship our priest has with the Father, a relationship that is indestructible, a relationship confirmed by the oath of God himself. God swore that Jesus would be a priest forever. And with that oath came the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, we'll be taking a closer look at that covenant in chapter 8. So for now, all we need to do is recognize the fact that with a change in priesthood came a change in law. And that change holds great promise to those who trust in the one who has been made a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I know this seems a little crazy and hard to follow, but it's important. Jesus 
is the priest. After the order of Melchizedek. So how did this priest do? He came with promise, but how did he actually perform? How did he really compare with the Levitical priests? Well, let's see. Verses 23 through 28. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The first difference we note here between the former priest and Jesus is that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Well, they couldn't. They didn't have the indestructible life he had and therefore could serve for, as priests for only so long. They died. So the priesthood was constantly in a state of flux. Old priests were dying and young priests were taking over. Sometimes that was good, sometimes not so good. Some priests were good and faithful. Others were reprobates who stole the sacrifices from the people and then served them on their family tables instead of the altar of God. Historically, according to Josephus, there were 83 high priests from Aaron until the destruction of Herod's temple in 70 A.D. We don't know how many were really honest, upright men who in good conscience sought to fulfill their role as bridge builder between God and man and how many viewed their office as privileged status, a position of power that could be used for their own selfish purposes. Be that as it may, the simple fact that no one man could remain high priest for very long limited their effectiveness. Jesus, on the other hand, lives forever and holds his priesthood permanently. He is therefore always able to function on our behalf. We don't have to wonder about our priest. We know who our priest is. And we know he will always be there to make intercession on our behalf. We never have to wonder about the character of our priest. We have an eternal priest who is holy, who is in fact God himself. We have a priest who is innocent, who has never sinned, and is therefore always undefiled, always ready to go before the Father on our behalf. We have a high priest who, while able to identify with mankind, is nevertheless separated from sinners, is totally out of the reach of sin. In fact, he is exalted above the heavens in the very presence of God. 
He's obviously in a much better position to perform his priestly function than any other priest has ever been. And then finally, compare the sacrifices of the Levitical priests with the sacrifice of Jesus. They had to be constantly offering sacrifices, not only for the people they were representing, but for themselves as well. They had to deal with their own sins before they could deal with the sins of the people. Not so with Jesus. He offered but one sacrifice. That sacrifice was himself. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who could actually take away the sins of the world. He could do what no other priest could do. They could merely cover up a few sins. And to do that required thousands and thousands of sacrifices. But he could offer himself once for all. And through that one sacrificial act, he opened up the way of forgiveness and access to God for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived or will ever live. The law appointed men as high priests who were weak, but by a special oath of God, we were given the very Son of God to be our perfect high priest forever. We were given as high priest the King of righteousness and peace. The only one who can give the world true righteousness and therefore the only one who can give the world true peace. So never make apology for the claims of Christ. He is the only way to God. He is the absolute truth by which all other claims of truth are judged. And he is the only source of real life, life eternal. It's undeniably true that no man, no matter how good he might be, comes to the Father but through Christ. Every man needs to be cleansed by the king of righteousness and peace before he can be given access to God. So what about you this morning? Have you accepted Jesus as your high priest? Have you allowed him to cleanse you? Have you been washed and had your sins washed away by his blood? Have you identified with his sacrificial death in the grave of Christian baptism? If not, delay no longer. Come now to the king of righteousness and find peace. Let's stand.